Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, archaeologist Uzi Baram has recently completed the final excavation before development takes over at Bradenton's Mineral Springs Park, site of the Free Black Settlement of Angola. I think knowing about the history that's beneath our feet helps connect people to a place. We'll discuss the development of tourism at Panama City Beach. It didn't really grow organically. This was a concerted effort to develop the area and to bring people into Bay County. And we'll visit the African-American community in Apopka. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. People from Andros Island in the Bahamas gather annually in their ancestral home of Angola near Sarasota, Florida. They are descendants of people who fled Florida two centuries ago when their freedom was threatened by the United States. When Daphne Towns discovered this connection between her birthplace and her current home, she was inspired to create the Back to Angola Festival. We were walking on the Manatee Mineral Springs Park and my husband came across a marker that said, the Bahamas and the Seminole Indians leaving to go to the Bahamas. I said, the Bahamas, that's my hometown. And as I continued to read, it said, Andrus Island in the Bahamas. I'm like, whoa, 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 this is too close to home. That's where my mother is from. So I began to start to research and I called home and they were like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I spoke with Trudy Williams with the Reflections of Manatee and she began to tell me, oh yes, this park was put here and this once where the Seminole Indians reside for a point of time before they went to Red Bay Andros. And I invited two of my friends who were visiting at this time for another festival and I told them you must see this place. And we came and we walked the grounds and we prayed and, and the three of us said at the same time, we need to do a festival. Because the Bahamas is all about festival and bringing history alive. Uzi Baram is professor of anthropology and director of the New College Public Archaeology Lab. In 2004, Baram joined a team of researchers that found the lost free black settlement of Angola. People started coming to what uh, we refer to today as Angola, uh, which is on the south side of the Manatee River, uh, probably in the 1770s, that Florida had been historically a haven for people escaping from slavery most famously up by St. Augustine, uh, Fort Musée, which was established in the very late 17th century. By the 1770s, uh, people are coming from Havana, Cuba to set up ranchos, fishing, hamlets. And that seems to attract some of the escaped slaves as well as free blacks who are living in Spanish La Florida. Some of the activities uh, in the Gulf Coast started pushing people to come here. The most important was what was occurring on the Apalachicola in a place called Prospect Bluff. 
In the early 1800s, Florida was still owned by Spain, but England built a fort at Prospect Bluff in the Florida Panhandle. The American government called it the Negro Fort. During the War of 1812, while Florida was part of the Spanish Empire, British soldiers helped establish a fort on the Apalachicola River. That fort ended up attracting hundreds of Native Americans and people referred to as Maroons, both free blacks and escaped slaves, self-emancipated people. And that became a real center with hundreds. The U.S. was concerned about it. They saw it as a threat to the slave regime. And the U.S. Navy went up the Apalachicola River in July of 1816. And what the U.S. military records describe as a lucky shot, blew up the fort, killing about 300 people, leading to the capture of a couple hundred more, and others escaped. And they escaped down to Suwannee, where the Seminoles have, have had a village under Billy Bowlegs, one of the great leaders of the Seminole people. Uh, they lived close to the Seminole village, strewn out in hamlets. We know that from U.S. military records. Encouraged by the single cannonball shot that landed in the Negro Fort Powder magazine, destroying the structure and decimating the population, future U.S. President Andrew Jackson continued raiding Spanish-controlled Florida. Uzi Baram. Andrew Jackson, knowing that people had escaped from Prospect Bluff, people who identified as British soldiers, people who had been trained in the military, sent, went with the Tennessee volunteers down to Suwannee. The 1818 Battle of Suwannee is again recorded by the U.S. military. The people referred to as black warriors held off the U.S. troops they ultimately fell back and the village was destroyed. But where they went back to was the Manatee River, Tampa Bay, Angola. So where from the 1770s, there had been a few people there. They expanded with the battle at the Apalachicola River and then expanded even more. By 1818, about 750 free black people were living in Angola. Long before the War of 1812, people escaping slavery in colonies to the north joined Native Americans living in Florida. Eventually, these formerly enslaved people became known as Black Seminoles. The relationship between people referred to as uh, Seminoles and the people referred to as Free Blacks, Maroons, Black Seminoles, uh, people who self-emancipated themselves from slavery, well, those identities were quite fluid at the time. Uh, the sense of these are rigid identities is something that we have today. By the time people were escaping from colonialism, from enslavement, and they were in a giant territory, which is quite underpopulated, right, the Florida Peninsula. The ancestors for the Seminoles were the allies, supporters of the people who escaped from slavery, the people of African heritage. Uh, and the initial uh, assumptions was that Angola represented both Seminole and Maroons. It seems the Battle of 1818 led to a split, where that the people of Angola were mostly people of African descent, while the Seminoles were more in the interior of the peninsula. It's not rigid. People intermarried, they interacted, they stayed places with each other. And by the time we have much more information, which is during the Second Seminole War that starts in 1835, the identities are Seminole and Black Seminole, very much showing that connection. 
between these two groups of people, both of whom have a common goal of being able to live in liberty in terms of their own traditions and ways of life. As Spain transfers control of Florida to the United States, Andrew Jackson requests permission from the U.S. government to retrieve stolen property from Florida, namely escaped slaves and their descendants. When Jackson is denied permission, he enlists help from like-minded Native Americans in Georgia who lead a raid into Florida on Jackson's behalf, Uzi Baram. This slave raid goes in surprises the people in Tampa Bay and Charlotte Harbor, spreads terror across the Gulf Coast, which is a term from the newspaper story, captures a couple of hundred people, but also notes that some escaped. And so what we know is, and we have the list of names of those who were captured. And so I can talk about Nancy, and I can talk about her three children, because that's listed. Uh, they were brought up to Georgia because they were seen as property. And there were lawsuits about these people, because in fact, most of them were in fact never enslaved. They had been born in freedom in Florida. And so there's some information on them. Others escaped into the interior. But as I've mentioned, as the history shows, they saw themselves as British subjects and they escaped through the Everglades with the help of Cuban fishermen and others to Andros Island in what was then the British Bahamas and set up communities where it'd be difficult to reach them quite purposeful. The west coast of Andros, has, uh, it's very difficult for large ships to get to. And so these people who were petrified of U.S. Navy ships found a place where they could live in freedom and have so since the day. Archaeological excavations conducted by Uzi Baram identified the site of Angola by the Manatee River in Bradenton, Florida, near Sarasota. Daphne Towns organizes the annual Back to Angola Festival to make sure this important history is never forgotten. I think everyone needs to know the history that once lived in this community and be aware of it, because I feel like once we know where we came from, we know where we're going. And the next generation would never know that this history ever exists. I have friends that I have friend befriended living here, right here in Bradenton, Florida, lived in the next street and did not know this park exists, or even this history. I talked with professors, school teachers, who are now retired, and I said, you must come to the festival. It's the Back to Angola Festival, and you know, the Seminole Indians and the free slave once lived right here. And they were like, where, in Bradenton? I was born and lived down the street. Are you kidding? And so they come back every year. It's like, oh my God, we never knew this. And if it was not for the festival, this history would just sit on a park. And so that's my desire, is to bring all of that history that's just sitting on that park alive. Sharona Woodside Barr is an Angola descendant living in Red Bay's Andros Island. She brings her traditional basket weaving to the Back to Angola Festival and helped Daphne Towns identify other participants. She came to North Andros, she picked her up at the airport and we drove into Red Bay's where she met my father and some other local Androsians. She, um, also got a chance to view the sponging and the basket weaving, the wood carving and, and all of that. And so she invited myself along with Miss Indiana Colebrook, the chef extraordinaire who cooks Bahamian del um, delightful delicious um, dishes, and Mr. Henry Wallace, re world-renowned Henry Wallace, the wood carver, and Mr. Wilson Russell, she invited us back, Miss Peggy Colebrook, last year. And unfortunately, only three of us made 
made the journey last year here. It was awesome. We really had a lot of fun. We learned a lot that we did not know happened here at Manatee County that linked us with Red Bays here. Wilton Russell is an Angola descendant living in Red Bays who brings his music and his wood carving skills to the Back to Angola Festival. When I first started wood carving, I started building boats, um, models, you know, that you put on shelves and stuff like that. My dad was a real boat builder, so it hung down, like people say, chip don't fall far from the block. Sometimes you have a son and your son end up doing just the things that you used to do. So this is, some of this has got to do with heritage. Uzi Baram. The story of Angola, the history that's there, the saga, uh, is both important just historically, right? There's a part of me that is, of course, uh, an academic, a professor, and just knowing what happened in history, just laying out where people ended up. Uh, for the people of Andros Island, it's being able to connect them to the ancestors. When Looking for Angola began in 2004, the elders knew that the ancestors had come from Florida, but that was about it. People did not share with their children and grandchildren the details of the terror that they had faced. And so there's just a vague sense of this large peninsula was an ancestral stopping point. So we were able to connect in much more concrete ways people on Andros, where the ancestors had come from and some of the trials and tribulations and achievements that they underwent so those people could live in liberty and on Andros. It's also important just so we have a sense of the trajectory and the ebbies that occurred here. I've been living in Sarasota since I took the job at New College has been uh, almost a quarter of a century. And I think knowing about the history that's beneath our feet helps connect people to a place. But probably most importantly is just to realize how people back in the early 1800s faced such tremendous challenges to leave the plantations of Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, and go into the unknown, to go through the hammocks and swamps of Florida just believing that there is a place where you can find freedom and liberty. I think it's just so empowering. Uzi Baram is professor of anthropology and director of the New College Public Archaeology Lab. We also spoke with Daphne Towns, organizer of the Back to Angola Festival, and Angola descendants Sharona Woodside Barr and Wilton Russell. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Down here on the Redneck Riviera a Drinking beer and singing country songs Chilling with the motel door wide open Hoping something good will come along Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, Ben, Panama City Beach has been a popular vacation spot for about a century now, right? 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. Panama City Beach, which is in Bay County. Bay County was actually only formed in the early 20th century in 1913. And the area, St. Andrews Bay, where Panama City Beach and Panama City are located, early on were really, they relied on the fishing industry. So it, it was the bay itself that really brought the earliest pioneers in the 19th century to the area. But as you said, in the 20th century, the nature of why people came to the area really shifted towards tourism. And that actually happened in the 1920s. So most of the area along the beaches or the southern end of St. Andrews Bay, what would now become Panama City Beach, was owned by the federal government. And it was actually homesteaded by some of these earlier developers, including W.H. Marshall, C.C. Mathis were some of the, the primary developers at that time. They came in, applied for homestead grants, believe it or not, all the way into the 1920s, acquired the beachfront property, and began developing the area to be used exclusively as a beach resort town. And actually, it was a series of towns, including Laguna Beach, Long Beach, and, and other places that were later consolidated into Panama City Beach. But at its very uh, early onset in the 1920s and 1930s, this whole area was billed as a vacation resort area. So unlike a lot of other places around Bay County, it didn't really grow organically. This was a concerted effort to develop the area and to bring people into Bay County. In fact, Federal Highway 98 that runs along the beach was one of the first paved roads in all of Bay County. And it was because of that tourism draw they were trying to bring people into down to the Gulf from uh, areas as far north as northern Alabama from Birmingham. A lot of people came in and started investing money and used, used the Panama City beaches as a vacation resort uh, area in the summertime. Well, as always, you have some interesting items from the Florida Historical Society archive here. This time, some travel brochures and it looks like postcards. Yeah, that's right, Ben. As part of the Ada E. Parish postcard collection, we have about somewhere near 17,000 Florida postcards. And if we look under Bay County, specifically under Panama City Beach, we have dozens of these very colorful beachside scenes. Here we're looking at one that says, enjoying the sands on Panama City Beach. And it looks like they were painted to look even whiter than they actually are. In fact, that was a big part of the early billing was we have the whitest beaches uh, of anywhere else in the world. And in fact, one of the early mayors of, I believe it was Long Beach, challenged any other municipality in the world to bring whiter sand to try and beat Panama City Beach. We're also looking at a color brochure. This is for Long Beach Resort, and this was printed in the mid-1960s. And the whole point, really, of this type of brochure was to not only bring folks down here for, for short-term visits, but actually to sell properties. So as I mentioned, these early development tactics, they weren't bringing people down to motels and hotels and places like that originally, but they were actually beach cottages. They were homes. Uh, some of them were large enough that they could you know, host parties, and several families could rent the cottages for a month at a time, sort of like what you would see in, in the Northeast and along uh, places like Long Island and places like that. They wanted folks to stay all summer or at least a month. You know, it became really a major part of a family's annual vacation lifestyle. They wanted them to come to Panama City Beach, kind of leave your life behind and just enjoy it for a month or so. So they were these really very well-established cinder block, sometimes wood frame cottages. And that's what they were trying to sell with a brochure like this. In fact, if we open it up, you can actually see there's an area where you could fill out, you know, your name and information and please give me more information about how I can rent or reserve at least one of these cottages for the entire summer. And early on, you know, Panama City Beach, the population just exploded during the summertime. And then in the wintertime, it really dropped off. And it was almost, you know, deserted, like a lot of places, a lot of other resort towns throughout the country. It really kind of fell into that same 
process. And, and in 1970, a lot of the smaller municipalities got together and they consolidated into a single municipality that is now called Panama City Beach. So Laguna Beach, Long Beach, these places all kind of got together and, and formed their own chamber of commerce separate from the mainland. Again, that was all part of the, the marketing campaign and the marketing strategy. And in 1970, they created their own town, and that's what exists today. And although the area has changed a lot over the last century, it's still a popular vacation destination, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's affectionately called the the Redneck Riviera. <laughs> a lot of people from, as I said, from Alabama and Georgia spend their vacations in that part of Florida along the Gulf Coast. But now the landscape is uh, is changing again to kind of reflect the change in, in the types of visitors that are coming. So these aren't the long-term, month-long families that are staying in small cottages, although there are you know, still these, these small beachfront cottages that exist. Now they're much larger high-rise condominiums and timeshare resorts that are sort of dominating, dominating the skyline. And then, of course, today you also have issues with erosion. We're not a huge problem back then, but, but we're always kind of an issue. So after a major hurricane, some of these places survived, but a lot of them, unfortunately, had to be rebuilt or, or will not be rebuilt. So, so the nature of the area is changing a little bit. It is still developing, but it is absolutely one of Florida's top vacation destinations. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the materials we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Holly takes us to Apopka, northwest of Orlando, to learn about the history of the African-American community there. After the Civil War, a former slave named Sarah Mead encouraged black families to move to Apopka, Florida, a community northwest of Orlando, to take advantage of economic opportunities in the citrus and farming industries. I recently spoke to Apopka Historical Society president and Apopka native, Francina Boykin, about early black settlers of Apopka and how they supported one another and sustained business relationships during the Jim Crow era. A woman who was a former slave settled in what is known as Mead's Bottom. Mead's Bottom was named after Sarah Mead and Lindsay Mead. They were husband and wife. Uh, Sarah and her husband homesteaded in the area now that is being developed into Apopka Town Center because Sarah came to Apopka from via Jacksonville. And Sarah introduced a great percentage of the early black settlers to the location. She sold supplies, she had a commissary, anything that the early black settlers needed during the Jim Crow era, African-American families in Florida faced many obstacles. Their freedoms were limited by discriminatory laws and the Ku Klux Klan, who were terrorizing African-Americans locally and all over the South. Between 1900 and 1930, Florida had the highest per capita rate of lynching in the country. Despite oppressive conditions, the African-American business community of Apopka, Florida managed to thrive. One prominent family that prospered in Apopka during that time was the Gladden family. 
Encouraged by Sarah Mead, Michael Gladden Sr. moved to Apopka from Jacksonville around the year 1910 with his wife Elizabeth and their two young sons, Michael Jr. and William, and they opened Gladden's General Store. The Gladden's eldest son, Michael Gladden Jr., had a dream to become a doctor, but when Gladden Sr. died from illness in 1924, he returned home from Morehouse College, a historically black men's college in Atlanta, Georgia, to take over the family general store in Apopka. While Michael Gladden Jr. ran the general store, his brother William operated a popular shoe repair shop, Gladden Shoe Hospital, across the street. They made so many contributions to this community, and their businesses were not just for the whites or for the blacks, they were for both. You know, they provided both brothers. There was another brother, his name was William Gladden uh, Sr. Uh, he was the owner, operator of the shoe hospital. You know, people say he always he was always saving souls, <laughs> uh, souls on shoes, that is, and uh, probably others too, but they brought so much. They did so much in this community. When you say Gladdens, their name and their legacy lives forever. Besides running the general store, Michael Gladden Jr. also operated a laundromat in Apopka for many years. In 1963, Gladden was also one of the founders of the Washington Shore Savings and Loan in Orlando, the first black-owned bank in Florida. Everybody traded and did business with Mr. Gladden. He probably knew every detail about every family because you didn't get through unless you went through Mr. Gladden. If Mr. Gladden said it was okay, it was okay. And being the store was located on, my, it's now Michael Gladden Boulevard, but it was 9th Street, but it's the main thoroughfare to Okoy, Apopka Okoy. So he would have done a lot of trading or people from Okoy would have traded with him because of his location. And so, you know, he was a man to look up to. In 1982, Michael Gladden Jr. died at the age of 83. Ninth Street, where his general store was located, was renamed Michael Gladden Boulevard in his honor. Gladden's general store was torn down in 2003. Before its demolition, Francina Boykin was given permission to retrieve items from the building. She found that Mr. Gladden kept three safes full of the records, deeds, receipts, valuables, and important paperwork for not only his family, but for other black families in Apopka. Francina Boykin. I have in my possession now many Gladden artifacts. I call it the Gladden Collection. I had the opportunity to go into the store before it was demolished. It was heartbreaking, but I retrieved as many items as I could, and they got a safe cracker to open the safes. And in those safes were volumes of documents, deeds. He kept their money, other valuables. He would put money up for safekeeping because you had to realize black people didn't believe in banks. And so uh, Mr. Gladden was their banker. He was their realtor. I even have a um, poll tax receipt that Michael Gladden Sr. had paid his poll taxes in 1920. So those are the kind of items that were in Mr. Gladden's safe. And I really appreciate that he left that behind so that someone could still tell his story. The records Francina Boykin saved from Gladden's general store have been preserved in the Carol E. Mundy collection at the University of Central Florida in Orlando and at the Museum of the Apopkins, located at 122 East 5th Street in Apopka, Florida. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.